time uh, Susan and I ever did a husband-wife retreat. And we were up in the mountains. We had about 15 couples. And there were about 30, 30 of us on that uh, Saturday afternoon. We were at a, a lodge, beautiful setting on a lake, and we were starting the afternoon study. And we walked out on the porch, and I began the study. And as I started, there was conversation over on this side uh, of the room. And much to my surprise, I looked over, and it was Susan and another gal. And they were laughing and talking. So I kind of looked, and I gave her one of those looks like uh, you might give your kids. I kind of said, okay, shape up. Then I continued, and I was into some really good stuff. And I was on a roll. And all of a sudden, I could hear this snickering to the side. So I stopped. I said, okay, obviously, there's something very funny. And obviously, you two have some sort of a secret. You're very witty, very clever. So why don't you just stand up and tell the group what's so funny? She said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, no, no, you've persisted now. You've disrupted everything. Stand up and tell the group what's so funny. Susan stood up and she said in a voice booming, I've never heard her speak like this in her life, said, Tom's zipper is down. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of broke the whole momentum that day. We've been meeting down here for, for two years now, and inevitably every trip down brings questions. And I have probably had more questions about tonight's general topic than any other subject. And that's about marriage and family. I get more guys saying, what, what do I do with this kid that doesn't seem to respond? And I don't know. And I got this wife and she doesn't. And then the wife will call and say, but he doesn't either. Uh, so what do I do there? And I'm going to run a risk tonight. And I know that this is risky. And I know I'm taking a chance. But I'm going to crack the door on my life about this much and let you see me and therefore see Susan and see our kids as we really are. And I want to tie it in and hopefully you'll pull some truth out of this and something that's applicable to your life. I want to start by giving you a watershed date in my life. It was December 13th, 1979. But I need to build you up to that date. I uh, moved down from Iowa. Anybody here from Iowa? (laughs) Moved down from Iowa. Charged up, filled with enthusiasm, ready to take on the world. I arrived in Tempe with my college degree saying, let's go. Let's go get them. And I had basically a, a philosophy of life that uh, is uh, exhibited in that bumper sticker that you see all the time that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. And that was my philosophy of life. I was convinced that when Frank Sinatra sang that famous song of his, My Way, that was my school song. Well, when you live my way, there are regrets, and I had a few, but they were, again, too few to mention. 
You didn't think I even knew the song, did you? And then Sammy Davis came along and he said, well, I just got to be me. And I said, well, I guess this is just what it's all about. If I'm going to live my way, I just got to be me. And there's going to be some uh, uh, bodies to step over as I try to climb that corporate ladder. And in my life, there were three things I always wanted, and they were acceptance and hope and peace. And my life had reached a point where instead of acceptance, uh, I felt rejection. Instead of hope, uh, my life uh, had no hope. And instead of peace, my life was in utter turmoil. And at this point in my life, I was living in apartment 202 up in Scottsdale. And one Saturday, I was sitting out on the porch, and I saw this chair coming up the stairs. And this chair at the top of the stairs made a left into apartment 201. And under this chair was this nice pair of legs. And much to my surprise, when the legs came out, there was a nice little torso and a cute little face. And I said, well, this is going to be nice. Then that was Susan. And I said, well, I'm going to get to know her a little better. And I'm going to turn on the old charm. So I went over and we started the dating process and we dated for about two months. And finally, the night of a Christmas party, I like to have a few spirits at Christmas. So the night of the Christmas party, the next morning, she told me that if I was the last guy on this earth, she emphasized the word earth. (laughs) No foreigners. It doesn't matter. No one. If you were the last person on earth, I don't think I'd ever want to see you again. Well, guys, you know what she's saying, don't you? Come on, I love you. (laughs) I knew that. So I started to pursue her. That was in December, and this went through January, and then into February, and then into March, and I'd call her every day, and every day she'd reject me. Finally, I called her at work. That was my scheme. I said, well, she's got to be nice to me at work. And I said, look, if I don't bother you for two weeks, will you go out with me in two weeks? And she said, yes, absolutely, I'll do that. Call me in two weeks. Thirteen days later, I called. I said, I can't wait another day. Will you go out with me tonight? And she did. And to make a long story very short, we have essentially been together ever since. And so it's important for me to say right in here that Susan was everything a person could ask for in another person. And everything a child could ever want in a a mother. And everything a a husband could ever ask for in a wife. And yet, after a period of time, this cup... It began to drip. Somebody said, you and I are like cups, and we just try to fill them up with people and places and things, and and my cup began to drip. Susan couldn't keep it full. That brings us to December 13th, 1979. If you're a sports fan, you'll know it's the only time in his boxing career that Ed Tutal Jones fought in Phoenix. If you're a real fan, you'll know that Ray Boom Boom Mancini was on the undercard. Well, it was also a friend of mine's birthday, and birthdays to me and boxing meant gin, tonic, scotch, water, beer. And we started at noon, and we went hard to get to the fights. They ran out of gin. I think I was a principal cause of it, but I don't know that you could build that case. So we had some beer, and then it was time to go home. And I had to go from Phoenix to Scottsdale, and for a trip like that, you need trail juice. So I stopped to pick up some more trail juice. Finally, I got to Scottsdale to a little place, a classy little place called Tuba City Truck Stop and Country Club. 
And we stopped there for a couple of good night drinks, and I started that final two-mile trek home. And as I started to head home, I got into Camelback Road, and all of a sudden, these lights were flashing in the back. So I moved over to the side to let the emergency vehicle pass. <laughs> and I moved over, and it moved over. And, and you have to know me to truly appreciate it. Up came a uh, female police officer and said, uh, can I see your license? And I said, "That's look it, I've been through this before. I can't stand on one foot. I can't touch my nose. Let's just go. And we went down to the Scottsdale and I called Susan and uh, I will never forget the look, not on her face, but on her whole body. As she walked in the door, she was eight and three quarter months pregnant. And she said, let's go home. And it was at that point in my life, really the next morning, where I woke up and said, there's got to be more to what's going on than what I'm experiencing. It. I believe Frank Sinatra, but I've done it my way, and it didn't work. In. And about that time, uh, somebody said to me, Tom, I've got the answer to your problem. And I said, well, I need an answer. What is it? And they said, Tom, the answer to your problem is Jesus Christ. And I said, See you around the base, Ace. Not interested. No thanks. About a month later, I knew there was a Bible study at Phoenix Country Club, and in I went, and there was a guy there by the name of Larry Wright. And we had a group of about half this size, about a, a fraction of this size, about 40 of us. And Larry was talking, and that morning, it's as though it was only he and I in the room. And it's like he had been following me around and writing down all the things. That, and it was just he and I. And he was just laying this stuff on me. And I went back to the office physically shaken. And I called Larry. I said, we need to get together. We need to talk about this stuff. And we sat down uh, at a Humpty Dumpty. And he said, what do you want to know? And I said, hey, I need answers. And he said, Tom, the answer is Jesus Christ. And I said, I've heard that. I said, here's what I'm willing to do, Larry. I'm going to go home. And I'm going to study all the ancient writings, all the Jewish writings. I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to study what the Hindus have to say and the Buddhists. And I'm going to read a couple Shirley MacLaine books. And I'm going to read everything there is. And when you and I get together next week, see, I didn't think this was going to take that long. I'll Six days later, sitting in a parking lot at McCormick Ranch, I reached down and picked up a little pamphlet that said a couple of things. It said, first of all, you're a sinner. Didn't need to convince me of that. I knew that. It said, Jesus Christ was God who came to this earth to die on the cross to pay the price for your sin. It said, if you'll respond to his call in your heart, he'll take control of your life. And at that moment... In that parking lot at McCormick Ranch at about 8 o'clock in the morning, I said, Lord, I've tried this for 30 years. It's yours. And everything that I do in my life is based on that commitment. So when it's time to talk about marriage, I have to go back to this book. USA Today carried an article about a week and a half ago, and it said the end topic for books in this December was going to be the family. Uh, Irma Bombeck has a book coming out on the family. Marlo Thomas has a book coming out on the family. Bill Cosby has a book coming out on the family. Marlo Thomas said this morning in an interview, she said the family is the only thing you can count on. <laughs> 
Now, evidently, Phil Donahue didn't know that. Um, but the family's the only thing you can count on. And I want to talk to you in some broad terms, but yet broad enough that they touch many of us. Just to give us just a rough guess, how many of you in the room are married? This is always interesting. How many, just to get, get, Susan and I were talking as you were coming in, I said, she said, what's the general demographic of the group? I said, where'd you go to school? We haven't talked like that. Where do you get this language? Demographic? I don't know. But just what we're saying here, how many of you, just so we get, just it'd be interesting, I think, how many of you have been married less than a year? Less than six, less than six months. What are you doing here tonight? You gotta be home. I don't understand you. Anybody less than three months? On Phil too. I keep forgetting. Less than two months. These are newlyweds. Well, let's go the other way. How many of you have been married twenty-five years or more? How about thirty years or more? This guy's so excited he knocked over the water. He, he's never seen anybody married 30 years. I have 35 years or more. you got to keep them up. Boy, a lot of you. Uh, 40 years or more. We lost some there. My, my, my. 50 years. Anybody married 50 years? Rosie's hand's never going down. He talked... When I was talking about, we were teaching about Abraham, Rosie said, let me tell you what the guy was really like. <laughs> Didn't you? How long have you been going to, anybody married more than 60 years or more? Yeah. Not me. That's neat. Yeah, I love that. I admire that. 60 years or more, and then let me just tell you that Rosie's still, he's still open to new teaching. And, and to new things, and to new ideas, and a lot of this stuff is new to him. And uh, it's an inspiration to me always to see him. So, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of James. If you've got your Bible, if you don't, book of James. Hey, Rosie, let me have your wine. <clears throat> All right, the book of James and the third chapter. I'll tell you also, we uh, not only appreciate you being here, but we know you're, we're sensitive to your time commitment. And we want to have you out. I know many of you have kids and, and all that. So we'll try to have you out of here, or at least be done with this by, say, a quarter to nine, maybe even sooner, depending upon... All of you looked at your watches. Okay, 8.30. Um, you are tough. I want to take a look at a, at a verse of Scripture. And I came across it, and I've taught it probably three or four times. And for whatever reason, it just kind of opened up to me a, a couple of weeks ago. And I want to draw your attention to James chapter 3 and verse 17. James chapter 3. And verse 17, and it says this, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, 
unwavering, without hypocrisy. Let me put that in context for you because you can see that that verse starts with that little word, but. That means what we have there is a contrast. See, what he's just said prior to that is wisdom. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and deeds in his gentleness of his wisdom. He said, but if you have, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But, and now we're the verse we're looking at. Let me put it in the context. James is saying, here's this thing called wisdom. Earlier in this book, in the first chapter, in the fifth verse, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I can almost see his tongue in his cheeks as he writes that, because we all lack wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask, and God gives it without reproach and gives it generously. One of the versions says he gives it without resentment. I don't think a day goes by, there's not a meeting for sure that goes by, that I don't pray, James chapter 1, verse 5. And I say, Lord, you tell me if I ask for wisdom, you'll give it. Lord, give me wisdom. And I love the version that says he gives without resentment. It's not like I pray that and then he says, wait a minute, let me check your wisdom bank. Hmm, you're overdrawn at the wisdom bank. No, he continues to give, if I ask. And this idea of wisdom seems to stick in James' mind, or God sticks it in there. And he says there's two kinds of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom produces jealousy and bitterness and selfish ambition. We're going to take a look at this verse tonight, and I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to look at it, for purposes of self-examination. This is one of those lessons that it's kind of fun to look at and then try to figure out who in your life fits into these categories. Or to look at it and say, man, I hope he's listening to this. Or to be saying, this is why I brought her. I want you to resist that temptation. I want you to look at this verse from your perspective and your life. I want us to take a look at verse 17, and he says, The wisdom from above. The writer of Proverbs tells us that wisdom begins with what? Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord isn't that uh, trembling, frightful, timid, scared. Fear of the Lord we define as a wholesome dread of ever displeasing God. That produces real wisdom. James says, here's seven characteristics of the wisdom from above. And let's read them again. Verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Let me ask you this. If I ask you to evaluate your life, would any of these words come to mind? If I took this verse and just gave it to somebody off the street and I said, make one observation, I think almost anybody could pick this out, that there seems to be some significance to the order here. 
He said the wisdom is first pure. Seems that that's important. So I want to talk a little bit about purity. When's the last time you heard somebody talk about that? That's almost passe. That's old-fashioned. We don't even use the word anymore. We use it, we talk about pure gold. Uh, If you hit a golf shot just absolutely perfect, some guy will say, well, I really pured it. But as a quality of life or lifestyle, I don't know that I hardly ever use it. A, a, A friend of mine said to me a year ago, he said, I can't stand Debbie Boone. I said, well, why can't you stand Debbie Boone? Boone. I don't like Debbie Boone. It's a girl I used to go to school with. So why can't you stand Debbie Boone? He said, I can't stand Debbie Boone because she's such a goody-goody. I thought, boy, you know, Susan and I, we, that's what we think. We're really hoping, we're trying to steer the girls, we're hoping they grow up like Madonna. That's what we want them to be like. We got them, you know, I don't want them to, we got them chains, we got them chains for Christmas. We're trying to find little boys in the neighborhood just like Sean Penn to come over, hit this kid, that's what we tell them. Now he struck a chord with me because I don't like Debbie Boone either, but I don't know why. Uh, actually, I think I do like her and I enjoy her. But I know exactly what he's saying. There's something about a person that's just too good to be true. Pureness, it's almost passe. Uh, we're almost repulsed by it. When we talk about purity, I want to talk about four areas of purity. Purity of thought. Purity of habit. Purity of motive. And the purity of God's word. First of all, the purity of thought. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something about this mind that needs to be transformed. And in the context there, Paul is saying, Look it, you've come to Christ in repentance and faith. You've done what I did that day at McCormick Ranch. You've given your life to the Lord. He said, Now be about the business of having your mind not reformed, but what? Transformed. Totally changed. Paul writes in Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Einstein wrote in 1943 and said this, the only thing that has not changed is the human mind. The idea of the purity of thoughts. And we live in a world in which the idea of purity is challenged all the time. And there's so much that's pulling at us. Television. I mean, you are, you are missing poor little rich girl to be here tonight. Luckily, we didn't meet Sunday or you would have missed a madam, whatever her name was. But the TV constantly barrages us. We see it all around us. It's in the print media. On the Black Canyon Highway. There's a giant billboard that says, You've come a long way, baby. And there sits a girl with legs about 20 feet long, kind of draped over the side of that billboard. CNN did a special last weekend on selling advertising with sex. 
Remember the old, the first one I remember is the old Noxema commercial. Take it off. Take it all off. I used to flip. That was the day I watched ads. I used to flip, wondering when that ad would be on again. When I didn't see that. I had never seen anything like that. The last study I saw that said by the time a child is 18 years old, they will have seen 350,000 television ads constantly bombarding our minds. Purity of thought. Let me tell you what the men struggle with. I believe that everybody has one thing that except for the grace of God they're over the cliff immediately. And men struggle in a lot of areas. They struggle with money. They struggle with power. They struggle with pride of their intellects. But the number one thing for the majority of the men that I meet is sex. I was with a guy last week and he said this to me. He said, I am not attracted to any specific woman. I deliberately, uh, here's a thought for you. He said, I deliberately hired an ugly secretary. He said, I am in love with my wife. But he said, and I quote, I live on the razor's edge. Pretty girl catches my eye. My mind begins to go. The area of temptation begins to explode in my mind. My thought begins to go. My eyes begin to bat. And I'm gone with it. He said, I live right there. That very same day, I was in a guy's office and he said, Tom, I've got to tell you something that I'm really struggling with. I said, yeah. He said, it's this satellite television that I have. He said, I love it. I get all the ball games. I get everything that I want. But every time I flick, it seems like men are flickers. He said, every time I flick, I also get this Playboy channel. He said, all of a sudden my thumb, gosh, I've got to rest that thing and get it. Put <laughs> that blood back in that thing. And he said, my mind, it just, it just goes. It's just gone. A friend that's struggled in this area of pornography, and by that we don't mean hardcore, we mean Playboy and Penthouse. He tells about Christmas Day, going to the 7-Eleven. It seems he got his grandkids. See, an older guy, too. Got his grandkids, a toy, and it needed a battery. And he went into 7-Eleven to get that battery, and the gals was very busy. Everybody buying whipped cream. They didn't have whipped cream. And she said, the batteries are in the back. So into the back he goes. And he picks up the battery, and there's the penthouse. And he talks about, before he knew it, that thing was open. And he talks about the next two weeks struggling with this thing as his mind goes, and it's all over. Purity of thought. What I break down is, I don't know what that thing is for the gals. I called a friend of ours that leads a couple of large Bible studies in Phoenix, and I told her about this with the men, and she said, well, a couple of things I'd tell you. One, I'm running into a lot of gals that are struggling with the same thing that the guys are struggling with. said, probably the two most that I see other than that are this idea of gossip, a little backbiting that's going on, or the idea of wanting a little bit more. Oh, this old thing is all I've got to wear to La Paloma. That thing of gossip is a deadly thing and it crosses all the lines. It's interesting because just before James talks about this wisdom, he talks about the tongue. Let me tell you something about the tongue. Do you know you can violate all ten commandments with your tongue? 
I would never think of stealing your car, but I might steal your reputation with a word. I'd never in a million years take a knife and shove it in your stomach, but a character assassination? I can do it. He said, Godly wisdom produces a mind that's pure. Paul writes in Philippians and says this, Fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and dwell on the fine, good things in others. Think about all you can. Praise God for and be glad about it. Getting control of your mind. The purity of your mind. And I think that flips us right into the second thing. Purity of habits. Now we're talking lifestyle. A pure lifestyle. See, I think morally we don't just fall off a cliff. It's more like a toboggan ride. Just a little bit at a time. It's kind of like going into a maze. If I go into a maze just a little bit, I can scurry my little tail right on out. But I get in there far enough and pretty soon up looks like down and left looks like right and I'm confused. And I think that's the way it is with sin. And I want to encourage you tonight to develop a pure lifestyle. And we're talking about controlling people, places, and things around you. And let me give you the key word for this. Because this is always a big thing. Hey, Tom, great message. How do I do it? Great, great. Right on. You're there. How do I do it? Let me tell you. Key word. Common sense. A guy came the other day. He said, I'm really struggling. Everybody's struggling. Really struggling. I said, great. What are you struggling with? He says, I do so well 29 days a year. 29 days a month. Probably does okay. <laughs> 29 days a year is more my style. He said, I do well 29 days a month, but the first Monday of every month is a problem for me. Why is that? Well, that's the Monday that after we're done bowling, we go out, have a few beers, a few shooters. The next thing you know, we're kind of out, and pretty soon the dollies are there, and we're gone. Now, how many of you are psychologists? Who, first of all, if there's one here, he wouldn't have the guts to raise his hand. But how many of you are psychologists? Anybody? Okay. How many of you are trained in counseling? One guy. Okay. You're out. You don't get to answer this then. What would you tell this guy? Not too tough, is it? You might try going home on Monday night. See, it's a matter of common sense. People, places, and things. It's purity of habit. Paul tells Timothy, flee those things. Don't mess around with them and try to prove that you're macho man and can handle them. You know what we tell the teens? We use this phrase, predecide your decisions. When you're sitting at home before the date, that's when you figure out that you're going to say to the guy, no. You don't wait until you're in the back seat of the car and you're, at, you're not thinking and it's all over. Well, we said I need to say the same thing to the adults. Predecide your decision. You've been to the spa and you've worked out. It's time to cool down. You don't cool down with Harvey Hardbody or Holly Hardbody. You get away from that. Right? If I have a problem wanting more, I don't spend my Sundays driving around looking at model homes to get decorating ideas. It's a purity of habit that triggers that whole process. Let me give you a real tip. Let me really suggest this, and we do this all the time. 
Let me give you a key to this, and that's to get involved in a small group. These are fun things, but this is a small tip of the iceberg. To get involved with a small group, maybe four to eight people, and do in-depth Bible study. And maybe even beyond that, one-on-one, guys with guys and gals with gals. Talking about what life's all about and the hard times that you face. Peter writes this, and let me just read it to you. It's in verse Peter, chapter 1. He said this, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought about to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not conform to your former lust, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy, for he is holy. Purity of habit. So we talk about purity of thought, purity of habit. Let me give you this. Purity of motives. I've discovered that there's one thing that kind of underrides and moves us a great deal. I've discovered that we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. I was with a guy uh, some time ago, and we got talking, and he said, well, what do you do in Tucson? I said, well, we do a Bible study. All of a sudden, he felt compelled to share with me uh, his spirituality. He said, well, I go to church. I said, that's neat. Where do you go? And he told me the name of the church. And I said, well, how would you pick that church out? He said, well... This guy's a real estate developer. He said, the city manager and the chairman of the planning and zoning commission go there. And I'm on the waiting list to get in their Sunday school class. Seems all the real estate people want to get in these guys' Sunday school classes. Purity of motive. C.S. Lewis uh, writes this, There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. He goes on and he says this, According to Christian teachers, this essential vice, this utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all those are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Then he defines this for us. He said, pride leads to every other vice. And he says, pride is, very simple definition, a complete anti-God state of mind. He said, here's what's pride. It's an anti-God state of mind. It's something that creeps into our life and it motivates us and it moves us. Sometimes we don't even know it's there. We wouldn't even give pride credit for what drives us. Uh, When you're sitting there ready to go out and the husband says to the wife, you're not going to wear that uh, dress, are you? She said, wow, what's wrong with this? Well, it's the guys at the office, you know. What's he saying? He doesn't give a flip about her dress. He's saying, I know that the guys in that office are going to judge me by how you look. I got some incredible news uh, last May. Devastated me. Sarah came home from school with her Iowa grading test. And I discovered I have... An average child. I told her it was in her mother's genes, but she didn't. What do I care about her Iowa test for? Pride. It just creeps in. Purity of thought, purity of habit, that purity of motive is doing the right thing for the right reason. There's a little book, it's a classic called In His Steps in which a man challenges his church to ask 
themselves every day in their life as they're faced with incident after incident, what would Jesus have me do? That's the question. What would Jesus have you do? Purity of thought, purity of habit, purity of motive. And here's one that's important to me, purity of God's word. The Bible is the word of God. Someone asked W.C. Fields, they said, uh, Fields, do you ever read the Bible? And he said, only for loopholes. <laughs> the Bible isn't there to be bend and shape. Here's an Ann Landers from about three weeks ago. Dear Ann, our Cocker Spaniel Rags died yesterday. He was 15 years old and everybody adored him. There are reminders of that darling pet everywhere, a feeding bowl, a rag doll, the ball he loved to chase. Our son Terry, age nine, asked, Is Rags in heaven? Will I see him when I die? I asked our clergyman how to respond, and he said, Tell him no. Animals don't go to heaven. I believe that this is an insensitive response to a nine-year-old. Can you give me a better one? Sign San Juan. Dear San Juan, I checked with several authorities... And the best reply came, and I won't give you his name because he's involved with the, and you'll go, that figures. <laughs> several, I, I checked with several authorities, but the best reply came from this man, who's not a theologian, but chairman of the board of a major university. And he said this, quote, tell the boy, heaven is anything you want it to be. Assure him that he will see everyone he wants to see in heaven, including pets. Is heaven everything that little nine-year-old boy wants it to be? Is everybody he wants to see going to be in heaven? No. The Bible says those that will be in heaven are those that have come to Christ in repentance and faith. It's the purity of God's word. And we're losing a little bit of that. It's so flippant now to say, God told me. You saw a man who uh, on television just finished his hour-long study a couple weeks ago. Standing there, and he held up a little pamphlet that he had written, and he said, I want you to have this. This is God's revealed word. No way. God revealed his word, and it's right here in front of us. The wisdom from above is first pure. Purity of thought, purity of habit, purity of motive. The purity of God's word. He said, then, then it's peaceable. Boy, that applies to the marriage situation. Let me give you just a, a couple of verses of scripture. Romans 12:18 says, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everybody. Hebrews 12:14 said, try hard to live in peace with everybody and be holy. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll, they'll be called children of God. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I leave you peace. I give you peace, my peace. Not peace that the world gives. Godly wisdom produces peace. Peace in a relationship. I'm not into body language, but some of you speak volumes of it. Just to watch you come in. You can almost see the tension in your relationship in the, as you come in the door. You can almost see it how you turn away from each other. Godly wisdom produces peace. Not necessarily in the world. Douglas MacArthur at the end of World War II, accepting the surrender of Japan, said this about the world. He said, we've had our last chance. If we do not now desire some greater, more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. 
And then Douglas MacArthur said this, the problem is basically theological. It involves spiritual renewal, improvement of the human character. It must be of the spirit if we're to save the flesh. It's a theological problem, and this godly wisdom produces peace. A good friend of mine who we know well said the other day, how come you and Susan don't fight? I said, well, let me tell you something. We do fight. But what you're asking is, how come we don't have these massive blow-ups? And let me tell you why. And I share this with you. Because it's of God, it's not human. It's not my response, and it's not hers. The reason is, one of us backs off. Let me give you an illustration from last Saturday. <laughs> Saturday is a big day to me. College football. I start with CNN, college football, today. And then I flip over and I get WTVS, Saturday, college football. Last Saturday, a particular difficult day, because Iowa hasn't won at Ohio State since 1959. And I'm there, and I'm primed, and I'm ready for the game. And it's about 11 o'clock. Susan is there. I said, Susan, I'm really starving. Lovingly, I said, I'm really starving. <laughs> and she said, well, what would you like? And I said, well, we've been the last few Saturdays getting these submarine sandwiches from this place. So why don't you just get a couple of those and bring them back and we'll have them. So she brought them back, cut them up, and she gave me one. And I'm eating a lot right now. Um, I'm, I'm in a growing spurt. So I ate, I ate everything that she gave me, and some of the kids uh, trickled in, and a couple of kids from the neighborhood, and they cut it up, and she gave them. So I went over for seconds. There was still this piece there, and she said, Tom, why don't you wait? One of the kids might want them. So I went in, and I looked at the kids, and I said, and they're just, they don't care. I said, what, uh, anybody ready for seconds? Well, I don't know, Dad. I don't, we might, might. I'm not sure. So I went back, and I sat down, and I said to Susan, look it. It's Saturday. It's my favorite day. It's college football Saturday. I've told you that I'm hungry. You know that I'm going through a growing spurt. <laughs> How can you not have enough sandwiches? It's not like I'm asking you to plan for retirement. I'm not talking about 20 years from now. You don't have to figure out CPIs and colas. You don't that. All you got to do is get enough sandwiches so that we can eat and be satisfied. We are at a key moment. And I sat back in the chair and watched the game. She got up a couple minutes later, went in with the kids, came out, took the sandwich and brought it over to me and sat it down. And I don't mean sat it down, I mean sat it down. And I know that the next one who talks loses. <laughs> and then Susan said to me, boy, this looks like a good game. Is there any single game that you're really excited about watching today? See, the whole situation is diffused. 
She didn't stand up for her rights and say, hey, you're a jerk. You want a sandwich? Go get your own sandwich. Let me tell you, that's not natural. That's godly. Let me ask you the $64,000 question. Do you have that kind of godly, peaceable spirit in your life? Do you claim to be a Christian? Because if you do, that's available to you. In fact, James says not only is it available, he said, I demand it. The wisdom from above is first pure and then it's peaceable and then it's gentle or meek. We define that as strength under control. Spirit that forgives again and again and again. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach patience when wronged, with gentleness correct those in opposition. That's what Susan exhibited that morning. It's that spirit that overlooks, that doesn't keep score. Doesn't say this is my money and your money. I meet so many people who are keeping score in their relationship. Who are saying, you remember back 13 years ago? Let me really get down and get dirty. I really see this in relationships where there's been adultery. Where I've got guys or gals saying, hey, she had an affair five years ago. Got every right to divorce her. I wish God would have put a statue of limitations on that. He said, there's the spirit that's gentle, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. It's also reasonable. And that really means teachable. It's willing, if I show it the right way, to do it, to yield to it. If I come to it, it says I'm wrong. It's the spirit that David had when he was confronted uh, with his sin, with Bathsheba. Remember what he said when he was confronted? I have sinned. And he repented. And his heart was broken. God didn't kick him and say, well, it's all over for you, David. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable, James says. This wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. It's a productive life. It's not, oh, I'm a Christian. It's the old uh, adage, if I followed you around for a week gathering evidence and I drug you into court and accused you of being a Christian, would I have enough evidence to convict you? Is my life producing fruit? Are there things in my life that would say, I'm a Christian, and let me get down and dirty here too? I'm not talking about going out and leading Bible studies, or how many men you've led to the Lord, or gals that you've got in your Bible study. I honestly think the best barometer is, what's it like at home? Where are you with your kids? Can mom and dad get along? A fellow said to me about a month ago, he said, you know, I look at my daughter, she's claims to be a Christian, but I don't see any fruit in her life. And I said, let me ask you a question. If I brought her in here and I said, name the three godliest men you know, would you be on the list? And his head just dropped. And he knows the truth of that. That's where it all starts. 
This is all for naught if that's not in place. And anybody that works with teenagers and they eventually get to write, uh, around talking about religion, they'll say, where are you on religion? And it's not uncommon. In fact, it's more common than not to hear those kids say, hey, I see my folks. I see them on Sunday and then I see them the other six days of the week. Christianity, it's a joke. Full of mercy and good fruit. 